Hello, I'm Rachel Vaughan-Jones and this is the Building Liquid Podcast, a show about startups in the drinks world, the founders that are building them and the tipples that have inspired them along the way. Today I'm joined by John Darby, who is the founder of Singusano. John's career pre-Singusano was actually in the world of finance, but following an inspirational trip to Mexico, which I believe ended up being quite a long trip to Mexico, longer than planned, John decided to quit his job and focus on sharing his newfound passion for mezcal with the UK and beyond. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. You've, um, you've said it all already there, really, about the start. <laughs> Where are you right now? Um, I'm in Oaxaca right now, in Mexico. Oaxaca, southern Mexico, otherwise known to Mezcal fans as the kind of home of Mezcal, the, cap- the capital of Mezcal, really, Oaxaca. Amazing. So I want to hear all about that, because I think you've been doing some uh, Mezcal-related manual labour <laughs> recently in the last <laughs> few days. But before we do, if anyone hasn't yet come across Singusano, could you give us a really quick intro to what you do? Yeah, so just um, headline, I suppose, is the Singusano is um, a project all about promoting... The Singusano project, to give it its full name, is all about promoting... Uh, the diversity and heritage of uh, agave spirits in all forms. So you probably have there's mezcal, there's tequila, there's other things called bacanora, and uh, there's a few different categories, but the Singusano project is about promoting all of them, certified, uncertified, different regions, different types. Um, and that takes, uh, it takes the form of, of running pop-up bars, uh, events. We have a subscription club called the Mezcal Appreciation Society um, and limited release Singusano brand bottles. Um, nice. And I've got one of those here, which you have helpfully told me how to pronounce it. Tepestate. How was that? Good. That's good. Perfect. I've got a <laughs> bottle of this. I have actually tried it before. It's delicious. So I'm excited to crack into that in a little bit. Um, for anyone who, I mean, building liquid listeners are generally quite drinksy but um for anyone who might have heard more about tequila for example how would you in layman's terms kind of describe the differences between those different agave spirits well so um tequila is obviously the most well known um of the in the agave spirits world and the fundamental reason for that is because it was it was given a denomination of origin uh years ago uh, which allowed it to be promoted and commercialized sort of around the world and through that process over the years, what's happened with tequila is it's become, it's become this more commercial product. The way it's produced has become a little bit bigger scale, much bigger scale. And it's sort of produced in, 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 um, in large scale factories with, with things, often things called diffusers to d- extract the sugars from the plant. And a very, a very sort of scientific process of reproducing this product for, for large scale um, bottling projects. And mezcal is still this super artisan version of that, where they're producing it in this in this totally handmade way, uh, which I can tell you much more about if you like. But um, much smaller scale, much smaller batches of the product, um, and produced with sort of cooking over fire rather than in a factory steaming something or extracting with a with a mechanical with a with a chemical process. Um, so mezcal is a is a is a is a small scale diverse version of tequila in a way and i know you were you were a big whiskey drinker before you went to mexico right and mezcal production actually predates whiskey is that right i mean i wouldn't be able to tell you exactly um when each one started but it's certainly super super ancient we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years that people have been producing um agave spirits in mexico but the fascinating thing about mezcal or indeed uncertified agave spirits is that 
people are still making it in almost exact, pretty much exactly the same way that they would have made it like 400 years ago. Whereas with whiskey or other spirits, people have modernized and certainly tequila, um, people have modernized and um, homogenized at the same time their processes to create efficiency and all sorts of modernization reasons. But mezcal seems to have been stuck in this, what kind of un, untouched, not so much stuck as just untapped, unexplored un, um, until fairly recently. So you're still going around, I'm going around and finding things of ways, hereditary ways that people have been doing things for generations that just haven't changed. So for that reason, you find things that are super hyper-localized. And how how do we kind of protect that? Because I guess when you, and I want to hear about that, that initial trip to Mexico that kind of started this journey for you and the experiences that you had. But coming back from that, you started the first ever kind of agave spirits bar, right, in London. There weren't any back then. Um, and now there are, you know, a few kind of, mezcal areas popping up over the place mm. and it feels like it's starting to get a bit more recognition how do we kind of protect that kind of ancient process that that people are still using and make sure that it doesn't become this kind of industrial production that has happened to so many spirits yes well that's the big question really and that's the that's what i've been trying that's what i'm trying to uh, do my best to promote and protect this those 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 old school diverse practices but um, that's the million dollar question, really, what the actual answer is. <laughs> from, my, from my perspective, what I do is I, I, um, I just try and showcase the, the, what I'm finding, sort of the talents of the producers that I'm working with and the, the, the really different processes and flavor profiles that they lead to. That's the whole point of everything I do. I can sort of walk you through how the project has developed, maybe, and might explain a bit more, but each step of the way, it's about, which I've developed running bars to events to launching a subscription club. It's about kind of, taking people on a journey because it's a very, very deep subject. There's a lot to know, there's a lot to understand and a lot to learn about different regions, different plants, different processes, etc. And um, I think it's just people understanding a lot more to I mean I've been finding, you know, it's one of those things, the more you know, the more you the more you kind of less you understand. <laughs> the more you know, the, the more you know, the more there is to find out, you know. Yeah. And it's about it's about getting people engaged. For me, it's about getting people engaged with that and realizing how deep the subject is and how complex mezcal and agave spirits are um, and wanting to delve into finding out and protecting those interesting little things rather than just being sold a flashy bottle of something and thinking yeah. that they know mezcal. And, yeah, it's about wanting to understand more and, and taking the effort to, to, to taste these different things. And if once you've tasted these things and you understand how precious they are, then you'll be more consciously minded about your consumption habits. It's more yeah. kind of hope. And that Mescal Appreciation Society that you've kind of started as part of this project, um, within that you kind of go and you source from different producers, right? So there's limited bottlings, not really to be repeated, and mm. kind of each time you'll be tasting something completely different. Exactly right, yeah. So, I mean, that was the, that's one of the, one of the core fascinating things about uh, artisan mezcal, really, is that even, even if you go to the same producer, so, I mean, there's, as you're probably aware, there's, there's, there's loads of different plants, different, different types of the raw material of the agave that you can use to make agave spirits, some, something like 35 or 40 different species that um, are recognized for using to make mezcal, but within that, there's loads of regional subspecies and uh, crossbreed, crossbreed things, you know, it's endless. So this is the, the agave variety alone. Then you put in the different regional practices of how to how to create them, different seasons they might be produced in, 
really there's endless different different experimentations that the producers do fermentation time roasting time things like this there's there's really endless possibilities so even if you go even if you take the same plant and the same producer and you go back one year to the next year and they're making a say a batch that's 100 liters in size those batches are going to taste or could be completely different could be a subtle difference but there's definitely going to be a difference so yeah so there's no there's no and that's what's interesting isn't it? it's it's and that's the sort of um, crux point really is that some people, the, what the market wants, and what some of the brands that are coming to the market want is to is to find a producer to recreate something over and over again in the same way, so that they can commercialise it. Obviously, it makes sense to have a brand that you can sell the same thing all around the world, and, it, and when someone reorders a bottle, it's going to taste the same next year. But that's not how mezcal works. So this is the thing to of, of how is, of what I've been trying to work out is how to operate in this world that promotes that diversity but also makes it commercially viable because um, so what, what I'm trying to promote is that people will celebrate that difference rather than be disappointed if their next bottle tastes different to the first bottle the point is that it definitely will taste different and that's what's yeah. interesting about it yeah and I guess in some ways you know that that consistency as you say is so important for the mass-produced spirits it's the sort of unspoken rule in whiskey you know that you can add a little bit of uh, non-flavored coloring for example if the batch doesn't quite have the same color profile as the previous years just because as you say consumers expect this you know every time they pour it into their glass it's exactly the same but mm. i think it's actually really nice to be on the other side of that to constantly be exploring and to be tasting different things and the the impact that different kind of elements have had on that on that process have you found that people generally are respect receptive to that so i started the running these bars when i was running pop-up bars i found that a small percentage of people that came to the bars were, were really really interested and i'd want to spend my evening just talking to them but of course i couldn't because i'm running a bar and i have to go and make a cocktail or sell a beer yeah. for someone else so that's when I started doing like tasting events. So I got those those that minority of, of super interested people. I was like, well, I can't talk about this now, but why don't we do an event next week? And started doing the, the events that obviously you've got two or three hours just to get deep into this subject. Then I was finding, you know, that's only scratching the surface since you're talking to someone in a room for two hours. Sounds like a long time, but this is, as I say, a very deep subject. So that's when I thought, let's start the subscription club. You take these people along on a journey. And that's exactly what the club is about, promoting these differences. And people are excited about the, the, the batch that's coming next. And we get really deep into the, the details of each thing and exactly how it's produced and hypothesizing of where the flavors have come from. And the whole point is that it's different. Each each bottle, each, we get two bottles in the box. And they're, they're yeah. sort of designed as a direct comparison with each other. So you can sort of an educational bit to each. There's a sort of focus for each delivery. It might be two types of the same plant produced by a different producer in a different place or two from the same producer that are using a different plant or anything really and we'll, we'll get into studying that and yeah my subscriber base as it is which is quite small they're really into that and so that's you know i'm super happy about that that's really positive that that people are um are engaging with that because i think as i've mentioned that's really what it's going to take to answer your previous question that's what it's going to take to protect this stuff and for it not to become this homogenized and for, for mezcal not to become tequila basically So talk to me about your first trip to Mexico. I want to understand kind of the experiences you had there and then the idea that you had to kind of bring this newfound passion for mezcal back to the UK and beyond and then how you kind of made that happen. 
So yeah, my first trip, my first time ever in Mexico, came over here for Day of the Dead in 2016, just because I had a friend uh, in Mexico City, and I was I had, at the time I had um, a two-week break between a job that I was doing at the time, as you mentioned at the start, I was working in financial, I was working in financial sales at the time, and I was moving over to do a new, to start a new uh, desk within my company, which was focused on the European oil and gas market. And this was um, this was late 2016, so it was a couple of months after we'd had the Brexit vote in the UK, and I was moving to this new team, focused on the European oil and gas market, and I was oh, thinking, why, why am I going, why am I starting a team that's based on selling of European stuff when I'm about to leave the market? Um, so I was on this trip in Mexico. I thought, well, I'll do something significant with these two weeks. I was going like, to climb a mountain or something, but I saw I had a friend in Mexico City, so I came to meet them for Day of the Dead. First time in Mexico, had a great time in Mexico City, doing all the Day of the Dead stuff, and then um, they were they were like doing a trip around the world, so they were they were off on their way, and I was on my own in Mexico for a week, and someone recommended I go down to the beach and do a beach in Oaxaca, which I did. Didn't know anything about Oaxaca, didn't know anything about Mezcal, really at all, um, but going to this beach involved passing through the city of Oaxaca, uh, which inevitably involves trying Mezcal, um, and. Partly because of me thinking about not going to this job, partly because I was having an amazing time on the beach, I just didn't go back to the job. I called my boss from the um, from a hammock on the beach and said, "I'm not ready to come back <laughs> to this job." And uh, he was good enough to say, "Take a little bit of time to think about it." He left the left the position open because, as I said, I was starting a new a new sort of team, so he left it open for me to to be able to come and do that until the end of the year. So we said, "Take it to the end of the year." So I said, "Brilliant! I'll stay in Mexico till." The end of the year so that turned into a three-month trip from a two-week trip that was planned and um in that three months i bounced between Oaxaca city and the beach went out on some mezcal tours met some palenqueros just really got into drinking mezcal <laughs> and um <laughs> i'm surprised you remember the trip john <laughs> <laughs> and i didn't you know I, I didn't think i still didn't think i'd work with mezcal at this point i was just really enjoying it and i got back to the uk eventually though, three months later and i thought well let's go and drink some mezcal. And I just assumed I'm from London and I live in London and I just assumed that we have everything in London. So I thought, well, I'll go, I'll just go to a mezcal bar. And that's when I couldn't find a mezcal bar and I couldn't find anywhere selling really, you know, there's some mezcal, but um, no one selling it or understanding it. I went around every bar in London that said they had mezcal and asked and, you know, try and, and tried out what they had. Almost no one, even if they had it on the menu, almost no one working in the places knew what they were doing or how to sell it or mm. what it was in it or and i was like well, this is why i didn't know mezcal before this is this is why no one in the uk understands mezcal because no one's selling it properly no one's explaining it properly it's a very it's a kind of a if you're used to drinking you know if, instead of going for a glass of wine someone says why don't you have a mezcal and then you get plonked down this strange smelling strange tasting thing and no one explains anything about it and it's also really expensive then people are, it's, it, it, people are going to be like, well, that was weird, not having that again. Yeah. It really, for, for me, I thought it needed a lot more, um, a lot more thought needed to be put into the way it was being presented to this new market. So I thought that was when I had the kind of the first light bulb moment, I suppose, was after I got back and I was in London, finding that there wasn't, it wasn't being done properly. So I thought, well, maybe I can do a little pop-up Mexico bar. Maybe I go for, I, I sort of met a couple of people on that time in 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 Mexico before. I thought I could go back and keep on learning, keep on meeting people, and maybe maybe bring some mezcal back with me. Started doing it was what became this, what I would hope to be the signature Singasano menu, which is a menu of tasting flights. So everyone would get 
three you buy three mezcals at a time and the menu was very detailed to take you on a sort of tasting journey at your table um and we're selling whatever i could buy in london plus whatever i could carry back in my suitcase basically i was gonna say baggage limit <laughs> out of the window <laughs> exactly so yeah it's a slightly illicit back street hackney pop-up was the first iteration <laughs> and um yeah it was really cool people were into it and so that developed the next year we did i did a, a bigger one so February, March, March 2018 to, to the end of the year, till Christmas. So that was quite a significant residency time, which allowed us to experiment with the menu a bit more, change, had a food partner in the kitchen that, we, that rotated, and start running events as well, start doing those tasting events for the people that were, were the most engaged. And did you kind of always think that that might turn into this sort of subscription club going out and finding different producers, bottling them yourself and kind of sharing the education that way? Was that always part of the plan or did it kind of evolve? It wasn't part of the plan for it to become a subscription club, but during the 2018 residency, I, before the 2018 residency, I'd already been going around meeting producers and buying small batches that I getting exported to uh, the plan was just to have them as house distillers. I thought I might as well start bottling it and selling it if I'm sourcing it. So how do you go about doing that though, right? So talk me through it, because before we started recording, you were telling me that yesterday you were helping build some sort of massive cumbersome clay thing. And I'm really interested to know, so you think, okay, I'm going to bottle this. I've start, I want to start kind of finding my own liquids. How do you go out? Like, what do you, do you go on Google and <laughs> search for, you know, mezcal producers in a region? Like, I'm, I'm imagining that's not how it happened. But um, where, no, do you, it, where do you start? So the very first start was my that that first that first time that first three months in Mexico before I knew I was going to work with it. I went out with someone, a guy called Alvin Starkman, who runs a, a, a an educational mezcal tour thing. Here's a guy who's been working, he's been living. He's a Canadian guy, but he's been living and working in Oaxaca. Um, for, for like at least 20 years um, and knows a lot of mezcal producers and he took me he took me to my first Arthur Dan Mezcal Palenque and one of the first people he took me to ended up being one of the first person featured in the subscription club actually but there's one when you spend time here you, you get you start to learn a lot more about different regions that are known for their mezcal production so starting in Oaxaca I'm, I've been around the country a bit more now to Jalisco and, and New Atlanta and Puebla and I'm excited to go to some other states on this trip this year as well. But even so, just personally in Oaxaca, there's different, loads of different regions with their different, their own different styles and different practices. But in, it's not just mezcal. These villages are known for their craft, and there's loads of villages that are known for their mezcal. And so that's just something you get to know when you're speaking to people in bars or chatting to people out here that work with mezcal. So it was just about start. I just started hiring cars and just driving off into those communities and knocking on doors basically i mean sometimes it's literally turn up to a community that you've heard is making mezcal go to the center of the village or the town go to the shop and ask for a copy like they'll often sell a you know a small copita small glass of mezcal over the shop the shop that you go and buy supplies in they'll also have some mezcal behind the counter for 30 mm -hmm. pesos or whatever for a copita try it if it's good ask them where they got it from and they say oh it's from jose three blocks down and <laughs> then you go and ask for jose and to start working around, to start asking around. I'm getting a bit thirsty, so I'm going to pour myself. Do you want to talk me through this specific? The one you've got there. The Stato. So the one you've got in your hand, yeah, it's from 
um, the producer, the producer that you're pouring the liquid of now is actually the one that I was with building a mezcal oven with him all night the other night this week, which involves like it involves getting up incredibly early and um, but all the manual labor you're going to do in the dark is too hot and it'll load on the agave at sunrise and it's incredibly beautiful you know um right rural place to be at sunrise and the tepestate is a variety of the agave plant it's one of the um more unusual varieties um quite rare rare to see bottled because it's the yield of that particular plant is very very low and the plant takes a very long time to grow so like the espadin which is the most common a plant used for mezcal will take maybe maybe six, seven, eight years to reach maturity before you can produce mezcal with it. Whereas the tepestate, until very, very recently, has just been found in the wild. And it would take maybe, some people say it takes up to 35 years to mature before wow. you can harvest it to make mezcal with it. So obviously there's a lot, lot less mezcal being made from that plant than, than espadin. Uh, and it produces these quite can produce quite intense wild flavors like quite i don't know what you're getting right now but generally with tepestatus i get like quite vegetal kind of mm. um sort of rooty flavors and yeah. then this in this particular community in the particular place where this one's from things have got quite a, a more a fairly crisp kind of saline thing going on with them whereas if you produce that so the production in that region with that with that guy i was just talking about he's using a copper alembic steel with a refrescador on top a refrescador okay. is a there's a water bath around the um, around the condensing chamber of the still, which um, creates a, a, a sort of a refraction process within the still that allows you to reach a higher ABV with a single pass through the still, which allows you to get quite a clean, crisp flavour profile and also reach a higher ABV without minimising work processes purposes. But if you'd have put that the thing you're drinking now, that plant, if you'd have produced it in another region where they're they're distilling in maybe clay pots or they're using wood in the still. It'll produce a whole different set of flavors. I mean, you can see I'm going on quite a lot about this already. You can see there's quite a lot of variation. Yeah, quite a lot I of things could listen to it all day. It's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And whilst I am a massive whiskey drinker and, you know, background on whiskey production, but my, my knowledge of mezcal production to date is pretty, like, limited. So hearing about this is absolutely fascinating. What I'm surprised about is, so it's about 46.5% ABV and... I mean, it's got power, but it is still so smooth and it is quite herbal. And I, that salinity I really like. How do people, so people who are new to mezcal, obviously in whiskey drinking, I'm a massive believer, drink whiskey however the hell you want to. If you want to drink it neat, if you want a splash of water, if you want to put ice, some whiskies I'll put water in, some I'll drink neat, some I like in a cocktail, whatever. How do you recommend people enjoy mezcal? So that's 46.5%. 46 I like hard liquor, so I think that's great yeah. on its own. But if someone finds that a bit kind of too powerful, what would you recommend? Well, I like hard liquor as well, obviously. And I, and I, want to, <laughs> and I, and I do definitely, I definitely recommend trying it straight as you just have. Maybe I'll have a beer on the side or sparkling water on the sides, but I just drink it straight like that just tiny tiny sips doesn't matter if it takes you a long time to drink a glass it's not mm. about drinking low it's just about enjoying that richness of the flavors that you're getting from that that particular one for example that you've got so it can take 30 years or so for the plant to grow so chucking a load of water in it or mixing it with a load of lime in a cocktail just seems crazy so i know that um is it a pound from every sale on the subscription service goes back into your kind of yeah project? so there's 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 a really important part about the project is the giving the give, calling it the giving back you know it makes it a bit uncomfortable that word giving back in a sort of 
sounds a bit high and mighty or something, but um, the idea, the ethos behind it is uh, is a profit share. So 10% of profits generated in the UK are, are given back to something. And they, we've got a long-term charity partner called Sacred, uh, which is a US-based charity that spends a lot of time in Mexico and Oaxaca and other parts of Mexico as well. But it stands for Saving Agave for Culture, Education, Recreation and Development, Sacred. And I've been the single on a project has been donating profits from all parts of the whether it's the pop-up bars or events or, or, or now the bottlings and the subscription um, across all those things. The idea is to give 10% on, on average uh, over a year away to them or other projects. And that's been going firstly to Sacred, who work on these different projects on the ground here in Mexico, like they work with Mexico communities building uh, like water security projects like rain rainwater capture um, uh, infrastructure that uh, brings water security to the community that can suffer with droughts. They've built libraries in, in, in rural communities that produce mezcal. They've, they've stocked the library with books that people have donated when they've come to a tasting, so like swapping mezcal for books. Um, they've got a really good um, agave protection program going on at the moment where they're donating agave seedlings, like baby agaves, to, to, to places um, that are... That are, that are low on agave by directly to producers that are sort of running out because of the mezcal boom is um, leading to agave being bought up younger and earlier than ever before. So yeah, they do things like that and um, been donating to them since the start of the project. And I'm trying to, I'm more and more I'm working, so the most time I spend out here, I'm finding, and, the, and the, then the better connections I get with the producers I'm working with, I'm finding more direct ways to to support as well, so to channel that. It's, you know, it's a small, I'm still a very small project and 10% of profits is still only a small amount of money. But um, it can, small things can make relatively big differences to um, rural communities down here. Yeah, um, I think it's great that it's built in, you know, it's baked into the DNA of the brand and what you're, what you're doing from the very start. So, you know, as you grow, that kind yeah. of giving back element um, will also grow. That's the idea, yeah. Um, so again, this producer again, what you're drinking at the moment that I was with the other day, last year when I was chatting to them, they were mentioning that they the region is becoming very, very low on on two different types of agave. One you're drinking called Tepestante and one called Tobola. So Which is just so arranged. delicious, by the way. Like I'm still sipping away, and it's just so <laughs> delicious. <laughs> um, so we've um, arranged. To, through another connection, they have a, 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 a brand in the U.S. called Respiral. Um, they they do they do a similar kind of thing with a profit share initiative, but they they have been managing an agave nursery in Oaxaca, where they've been um, receiving seeds from some producers in a producer in one region, growing them into little baby agaves, and then partnering with brands like myself to have them donated to other regions where they're running low. So, this region that you're drinking from at the moment is is low on tobalar. But another region is rich in Tobolar, and we're sort of organising an exchange to kind of keep. So I've, yeah. I've, I've arranged to donate 500 baby Tobolar plants. So yeah, it's like trying to find ways to to um, to have a positive, sustainable impact. And it could be anything, really. That's just one example. You know, next time it could be someone needs a new roof or something. But <laughs> it just depends. Yeah. Well, you can go and build it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So what is next? You know, I think 
for various kind of guests that I've had on the podcast in the past, you know, different people at different stages, different ambitions, you know, for some people, their goal is, you know, I want to build a brand as big and as, as big as possible in as short a time frame as possible. And, you know, there's an exit strategy there. There are other brands that are building more kind of lifestyle businesses. What you're doing is very much about championing the craft of these different kind of producers and regions what does success look like for you for the Singusano project well that's a good question because I mean as we've talked I've gone over the the starting phase of the whole project and it was it, yeah. it wasn't the how, how do I build a massive <laughs> brand and sell it onto the Agio in five years kind of model which obviously lots of people are, are following it was more born out of a genuine sort of passion I developed for it accidentally and it, it, it was I mean it was a happy coincidence I suppose that I that I happened to be in Mexico and fall in love with Mezcal at a time when it also seemed to be gaining global notoriety but it was there was that was an accident um, and success to me has been just being able to do my own thing my own way and being able to spend more time out here developing my knowledge and doing the things I like doing, which is like going out and building a mezcal oven at five in the morning. Yeah. Yesterday. <laughs> so I haven't, I haven't, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't not got a business plan that says this is where we're going to be. This, we're going to have like this many Instagram followers by this point, And therefore we can pitch it to this buyer and this buyer. That's not what the model is here. Uh, the model's fluid. It's successes, successes to be able to see the producers I'm working with, still being able to do things that they want to do and not be coerced into like, you know, just growing a monocrop to sell as a, their, their, their liquid to a conglomerate that's going to mix it all together yeah. to try and protect those things from happening. And, um, and just feel like I'm having a positive impact whilst, whilst being able to, um, to get by on it myself. Um, that sort of sounds like a reasonable, yeah Answer. it's pretty refreshing to be honest and it's I think it's to use a horribly overused word authenticity it feels <laughs> feels it's authentic right it came from the fact that you fell in love with the liquid you wanted to find it back home it wasn't available and you kind of set about trying to learn as much as possible you're continuing to learn and give back and kind of get other people to enjoy the mezcal that you fell in love with so it's quite refreshing to to hear that perspective um, my final question is always the same, and that is the Desert Island Drinks Cabinet. So, <laughs> obviously, you've got mezcal coming out of your ears. Uh, what yeah. else? <laughs> what yeah, you, else would you need on your Desert Island? Well, not a lot. You, you, might, you might not be surprised to learn that, uh, you know, after the uh, what do you mix the drink with question, you might, yeah. not be, <laughs> you might not be surprised to learn that I would take I would certainly take some straight up mezcal with me and wouldn't necessarily need much else. I mean, I've certainly spent during that, during that first three months in Mexico that I was telling you about, I spent a long time on the beach just with straight, straight mezcal, you know, that's, yeah. that's, I've been there. I've, I've done that. I've done the desert island thing with mezcal and that works very well. <laughs> it was a tried <laughs> um, and tested method. <laughs> so I'd take, I'd take a couple of particular expressions of things that I've found direct from the producers. And which ones, if you had to pick your kind of desert island mezcals then, which ones would they be? I guess I'd have to have two that are like quite different. So depending on my mood, you can have different um, flavours. So like the one you're drinking, for example, that sort of crisp saline 
profile, which but incidentally is very it's not very smoky, is it, that one you're drinking? No. So anyway, I'd well, have one like that which is which is not smoking crisp. So probably one from that producer's called the Tobala Tepestate Ensemble. And ensemble is when it's made with more than one agave variety. The Tobala Tepestate from that guy, which is one of my all time favourites. And uh, then I'd probably go for something a lot heavier and richer and earthier and probably a bit more smoky from a completely different region that's produced in clay and fermented maybe in rawhide or something. Possibly something from a place called Solid de Vega, which is a one of the famous regions that produces in that clay pot style. Um, so yeah, that one, San Luis Amatlan, Michoacan region, Tepestate, Tobola Tepestate, and then a Solid de Vega Coyote. That's what I'd take with me. And Very a case nice. of uh, a case of freezing cold Pacifico beers <laughs> to wash it down with. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me, John. Thank you so much. It's been probably the most fascinating episode for me personally so far because oh, it's cool. a, a category good. I don't know loads and loads about, but I've really enjoyed drinking it. That's absolutely delicious drop, and I can't wait to follow your journey and see what you do next. And I'll definitely be subscribing and and exploring the different mezcals that drop through my letterbox every other month so thank you and yeah keep in touch well yeah thank you so much great to chat perfect speak to you soon cheers Rachel if you'd like to continue the conversation feel free to reach out to me on instagram at rvj drinks and of course if you enjoy the show don't forget to tell all your drinks curious friends about it and leave us a review if you feel like it because it will help other people to find us otherwise i will catch you soon